theyeshiva.net. Welcome to one and all. The story behind a curse is our discussion this evening, dealing with that deeply strange, painful, and tragic story at the conclusion of the portion of Emmer, which also its location, its placing in the Torah seems very strange and anticlimactic. We have been dedicating this book of Ayikra to sacrifices, to the sanctuary, to its dedication. In Emmer, we've been discussing the laws of the priesthood, other laws of sacrifices, the list of all of the Jewish holidays throughout the year. And then, totally unexpected and not non-anticipated, a new story emerges. A man who cursed let us look at the story and reflect on it. Please bring up source number one in your curriculum. Right below the video you have a PDF with your curriculum, source number one. The Torah tells this story. Vayetzei ben Isha Yisraelis, the son of an Israelite woman, went out. Vuhu ben Ish Mitzri, and he was the son of an Egyptian man. He went out among the children of Israel. They quarreled in the camp. Who quarreled? The son of the Israelite woman and another Israelite man. This is an interesting verse if you study it. For one, we know that he went out. Who went out? Somebody with a Jewish mother and an Egyptian father. He went out among the Jewish people. Who did he fight with? He fought with somebody in the camp. The son of the Jewish mother fought with another Jewish man. ben The son of the Jewish mother cursed the name. He cursed it. They brought him to Moses. V'shem Imoi, the name of his mother, was Shloimus Bas Divri Lemate Don. Shloimus, the daughter of Divri, from the tribe of Don. And the continuation of the story is, Moses did not know what to do with this man, who cursed the name of God. And he asks God, and the verdict is, the death penalty, which is performed on this human being 
And that's the end of Emmer, how they take him out. God says, Take out the one who cursed outside of the camp. They take him out, and he's killed through stoning. A deeply enigmatic story. But what we immediately notice is a strange phenomenon. The way the identity of this person is introduced. First, he's identified as the son of a Jewish woman and an Egyptian father. Then again, he's identified, he's quarreling, who? The son of the Jewish woman. Then again, he's identified, the son of the Jewish woman, cursed the name. They bring him to Moses. And suddenly we find out the name of his mother. Could have said the name of his mother right in the beginning. No, in the beginning it doesn't say the name of his mother. Just it keeps on saying three times that he was the son of a Jewish mother. Once it says he was the son of an Egyptian father. Three times again. The son of a Jewish mother, the son of a Jewish mother, the son of a Jewish mother. And only later do we find that her name, her name is Shlemus, the daughter of Divri, the tribe of Dun. Strange syntax and structure. Now, that's number one. Number two. The word Vayetze in the beginning is strange. Vayetze, he went out. Where did he go out from? The Ebenezer writes, he went out from his tent. Granted, why is the Torah telling us he went out from his tent? Why couldn't the story begin with the fight? A man, a son of a Jewish mother, the Egyptian father, got into a fight in the camp with another Jew. Why does the Torah begin this story with the word Vayetze, he went out? In Torah, these small details usually contain within themselves the codes to be able to appreciate the plot and the subplot and the sub-subplot of the episode, of the story. Rashi, indeed, asks this question. Source number two, Rashi says, Vayetze. Ben Ishi Yisrael is Mehechen Yatsa. Where did he go out from? And Rashi brings from the Medrash. From Sifra, Teres Koyanim, Tanchuma, Medrash Rabbah. Three opinions. Rabbi Levi Yomer Me'eloma Yatsa. Rabbi Levi says he went out from his world. Doesn't explain what that means. He went out from his world. That's where he came out from. From his world. What does this mean? Very strange interpretation. What do you mean you go out of your world? And where is he getting this from? And what does he mean? Some commentators, the Sefer Azikaran and others, explain that the word right before the story, in the Torah, in Emmer, the two words are Chak Oilam, an eternal law. The last word is Oilam, the world. Vayetze, he comes out of Oilam. The word Vayetze follows the word Oilam. He comes out of his world. What does it mean to come out of his world? Some people say it means he lost his life. He forfeits his world. Others say he forfeits the future, forfeits the future world. Olam Haba. Rabbeinu B'chayi writes, The Midrash says famously, the human being is a miniature universe. The microcosm is a reflection of the macrocosm. Every human being is a world, a miniature world. Olam Katan. He left his world, he left the miniature world called the human being. What does this mean? What is Rabbi Levi trying to say? Why is the Torah telling us he left his world? What does this add to the story? Rashi brings a second opinion. Let's continue in source number two. Rabbi Brachio, the sage Rabbi Brachio said something else. 
He was coming out from the previous portion in the Torah. He scoffed and said, On Shabbos you should prepare it. Does the king eat every day fresh warm bread? Or does the king eat cold, stale bread that's been around nine days? He was scoffing at the law discussed right before this story in Emmer. He came out from this law. The law right before this is known as the law of the Lechem Haponim, the showbread. Which means, every Friday they would break, bake 12 breads, known as Lechem Haponim. They were placed on the Shulchan, on the table, in the sanctuary, and later in the Beis HaMikdash. And they remained there throughout the week. Next Shabbos, the old bread was given to the Kohanim, to the priest, to eat and the new bread was placed on the table for another week. So if the bread is baked on Friday, placed on the table on Shabbos, exchanging the old bread, and then eaten the next Shabbos, when they eat it, how old is the bread? It was baked on Friday, so you have Friday, and then you have Shabbos, and then you have another seven days, it's nine days. Should the king eat cold bread nine days old or new fresh warm bread he was laughing at this law that God wants to enjoy the bread of nine days telling the Kohanim his messengers his ambassadors to eat this ridiculous old stale bread it doesn't make sense and this man was laughing and right after this story of Lechem Aponim the portion of Lechem Aponim comes this story by Yetzeh he was coming from this he was laughing at this and here the obvious question is, why from this law? <laughs> why did he choose from all the laws in the Torah? You can ask lots of questions and lots of strange things. From all the halachos, from all the mitzvahs, he had nothing to scoff at. But the story of the bread, that it's old, it's stale, it doesn't make sense to eat bread after nine days. Next, Rashi continues a third opinion. The Brisa says, He came out guilty from the court of Moshe. He came to pitch his tent among the tribe of Don because his mother was from Don. They asked him, Why are you here? He said, I'm from the children of Don. My mother comes from Don, one of the children of Jacob. They told him, The verse discusses the encampments and the placements of the Jewish tribes during their, time in the, during their journey in the desert. And every single tribe had its degel, its flag, which had its own shape, its own design, its own color. And every tribe had its place where it would encamp. There was no confusion. Although it was one people, but the people were divided in 12 tribes, and each shavit, each tribe had its place, its camp, on the, on the north, or on the south, on the west, each tribe. And it says, Every person dwells near his, near his flag with its special symbol, according to the house of their father. In other words, 
in order for you to identify yourself as a member of Don, your father has to be from the tribe of Don. Not your mother. You're a descendant of Don. But as far as the placement among the tribe of Don, it goes according to the father. Your father wasn't from Don. He went into the court of Moshe. And he came out losing the case. Ahmad, he stood up, and he cursed God. What's the source for this interpretation? For the first interpretation, for the second interpretation, the Lechem Haponim comes right before the story. What about the third? Because it says, they quarreled in the camp, which indicates that the fight had to do with machana, with the camps, with the place of dwelling. Indeed, it was about, can he pitch his tent among the tribe of Dun, or must he pitch his tent elsewhere, according to the structure set up by, by Moses. So this is a third interpretation. Now, these three interpretations seem completely disparate, completely separate one from another. And yet all about the same person. What is the connection between Rabbi Levi's perspective, he left his world. Rabbi Brachia's perspective, he was scoffing at the bread that was eaten every Shabbos in the sanctuary. And the third opinion was actually a fight over real estate. Do I have a place in this camp And why did he curse God? Why was he so upset at God? Now, there is another component. Take a look at the next Rashi. Bring up source number three. The Torah identifies him as Ben Ish Mitzri, the son of an Egyptian man. Rashi tells us, Hu HaMitzri Shahargai Moshe. This is the Egyptian who Moshe once killed. The source of this is in Medrash Rabbah, on many Medrashim on this portion, in Zohar, many other places. This is referring to, actually, the first opening story about Moshe Rabbeinu back in Shmois. He grows up, grows up in an Egyptian palace. He goes out to his brothers. And what does he see? He sees an Egyptian man who is identified as Ish Mitzri, which is why we make the parallel between this Egyptian and that Egyptian. On both it says Ish Mitzri. It doesn't say Vuhu Ben Mitzri. Ben Ish Mitzri. An Egyptian man to identify and tell us it's the same man. And he, Moses sees this Egyptian beating a Jew. Mercilessly. The Jew will die. And Moses looks here and he looks there and there's nobody there and he strikes the Egyptian, he kills the Egyptian, he hides him in the sand, and saves the Jew from death. Of course, later, he's informed upon to Pharaoh, he has to flee the country, ends up in Midian, where he meets his future wife, Zipporah, marries her, and encounters his future father-in-law, Yisro, Jethro, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now imagine, this happened... Years ago, years ago, when Moses was a young man and he beat an Egyptian, he killed an Egyptian and fled Egypt. 
Now he comes back to Egypt. He redeems the Jewish people, the plagues, the exodus, the splitting of the sea. Now they're traveling in the desert. And suddenly a young man or a man is brought to him. Who is this man? This is the son of a father that Moshe killed. And now this son curses God. And he's also killed. Deja vu, right? What did he say? What did Yogi Berra say? Deja vu all over again. Moses again encounters face to face the son of the father whom he saw beating the Jew. Now, as the rabbis, the sages in the oral tradition share with us a fascinating story, which, Mo, which Rashi also quotes in Shmois, namely, why was the Egyptian beating the Jew? The Jew he was beating to death was the husband, the Jewish husband of Shloimeh's Bas Divri. Shloimeh is the daughter of Divri from the tribe of Don. This Egyptian man forced this Jew to let him go into his house masqueraded as the husband, projecting himself as the husband. This Egyptian man took a liking to Shloimeh's and she thought it was her husband at night, no light. And they had relations. Her Jewish husband knew what happened. He saw what happened. He saw what the Egyptian did to his wife. So the next day at work, the Egyptian was beating the Jew, the husband of Shloimus, all day. Now, they had a child. And this child is this Jew. His mother is Jewish and his father is an Egyptian. And now this Egyptian man who was killed by Moses, he had a son. Impregnated. Conceived through Shloimus who was impregnated by this Egyptian. And now he curses God. What is the meaning of this? So we have here a long narrative. It's a Continuous story. It starts off Moshe Rabbeinu. This is the first time of Moshe Rabbeinu. And now suddenly Moshe comes back almost to continue and complete that story. And yet this son, whose father is an Egyptian and his mother is Jewish, is dealing with leaving his world, making fun of the bread, and cursing because he lost a court case about his place in the Jewish camp. In other Midrashim and commentators, it's explained that they were fighting. What were they fighting about? This Jewish guy was telling him the story about his father. What his father did to his mother. And who his father was. And how Moshe killed his father. And this was the fight. And this is what caused them to curse. So this was actually the fight. That's another perspective. Take a look at the Zohar. Source number four. The Zohar, the great Kabbalistic foundational text, tells us this. Source number four. What does the word Vayikoiv mean? This is another question. The Torah says Vayikoiv and then it says Vayikalil. Vayikalil means he cursed. What does Vayikov mean? The Zohar says Vayikoiv, Reb Abba Omar, Vayikoiv, Vadai. 
It means he made a hole. Vayikov comes from the word nekev. He perforated. Kemodat amrit vayikov cherbedalsoy. As it says that he perforated. He made, he drilled a hole in its door. Nakiv madahavasasim. This man perforated that which was closed. He opened up that which was plugged. That is what he did. Vayikov doesn't just mean he cursed God. Vayikov, he opened up a hole. He opened something up. Something that was closed, he opened up. What does this mean? And then the Zohar continues, V'shemi ma'ishloim is basdivri. Atkan sosim shmodi Till this point, the name of his mother is concealed. She's not exposed. Kivan dixi vayikov. Once the Torah says, Vayikov, he opened up a hole. Nakiv Shmodi'imei. The Torah exposes the name of his mother. Take a look now at the Arizal. Source number five. Rabbi Isaac Luri, Rabbi Yitzchak Luri, the great Kabbalist of Sva, 16th century. Shar Hapsukim, one of his books, Shar Hapsukim, Parshas Emmer. Ha'inyin, who says the Arizal, the Holy Arizal, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, source number five. Kizeb ben Aisha Yisrael is ben Aisha Mitzvah Shargamersh Rabbi Noel Vashalom Kineskev Parshas This young, this man, the son of a Jewish mother, his father was the Egyptian who Moses killed. Ukvaya Daita, you know already from the writings of the Arizal and Parshas Bereshis, and from the writings of the Arizal and Parshas Shmois and Yisrael. This Egyptian killed by Moses who was beating the Jew was the reincarnation of the negativity of Cain, the son of Adam. The first boy, Cain, the son of Adam, part of him was reincarnated into the Egyptian being the one who was killed by Moshe. This child came from the father, and his personality resembled the father. He too was thus a continuum of the negativity of Cain. That's where the Torah says he was the son of the Egyptian man. And therefore he cursed God. The footnote says, Amar Shmuel. This is a footnote by Reb Shmuel Vital, the son of Rabbi Chaim Vital, the great disciple of the Arizal, who transcribed all of his writings, all of his teachings. A fascinating idea. How did Moses kill his father? What does the Midrash say? Rashi quotes it through God's name. It wasn't a violent murder. Rather, he pronounced God's name, and as a result of that, the Egyptian died. So his son now curses that name through which his father was killed. Now the Arizal continues. He wanted to protect his mother, who was humiliated by this Egyptian man who came and had intimacy with her and violated her. And as Rashi writes from the rabbis, from the sages, that the Torah identifies her to say that this was the only Jewish woman throughout the long and terrible Egyptian exile who had relations with an Egyptian man. And it was also unintentional. He wanted to protect his mother. 
Vayikov chur b'mosach shebein yitzira la'asiyah b'levad. So he perforated, he made a hole in the curtain between the world of Yitzira and the world of Asiya, the world of formation, the world of action. There was a curtain between the two worlds, and he made a hole in that curtain. So that way, the light of the worlds, the world of intimacy, the world of creation, the world of formation, should naturally and automatically shine through into the lowly world of action. In Kabbalah we have four worlds, which are four states of consciousness, four dimensions on reality, four perspectives, four states of reality, intimacy, creation, formation, and action. There is a partition separating one world from another world. This man perforated that partition so that the light can flow into the world of Asiya, into the world of action. As the Zohar continues, when it says he cursed God's name, is it was the last letter of God's name, the He, which represents the world of Asiya, because God's name has four letters, Yud and He and Vav and He. And he tried to manipulate that final letter of the name so that the world of Asiya can get all the light from the higher worlds without the partition, because he made a hole in the partition. What does all of this mean? We have here many concepts, many stories. Suddenly we're introduced to the Kabbalistic idea of Ayikov, he made a whole. What does this mean? What does this represent? What was he trying to accomplish? How does it connect to all the other interpretations of who he is? Now we're dealing here with some very mystical and profound ideas that deal with very deep realities. As the Zohar continues, that these this story contains tremendous and great mysteries in the Torah. Tonight I will not exhaust the topic, not even scratch the surface of it. I just want to present, based on different works, one aspect, one ray, one dimension to understand part of the story. But there is much, much more to discuss and far more that's even beyond, beyond discussion. Briefly, we are exposed here in the works of the Zohar and Arizal to the fact that this man attempted to break down structure. Everything in the world, every person in the world, every reality has its place, its identity. It's individual chemistry, qualities, and characteristics. And therefore, every single thing and person has his or her own story, mission statement, purpose, based on who he or she or it is. It's once again worthy to quote that memorable line of the Kotzke Rebbe, Rabbi Benachem Mendel Morgenstern, Ich bin ich, weil du bist du, und du bist du, weil ich bin ich, bin ich nicht ich, und du bist nicht du. If I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, I am not I, you are not you, but if I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, then I am I, and you are you. There is I and there is thou. There is I and there is you. Now sometimes... There are people, there are philosophies, there are cultures that try and continue to try. It's actually a very popular idea in the modern age. 
to delegitimize borders. This is the philosophy that claims there should be no borders, no boundaries, no distinctions. Let the world live as one. Imagine no heaven, no earth, no nations, no borders separating people, separating existences, separating reality. Let us the surface it sounds very romantic poetic exciting and idealistic why can't the world really become one why can't all peoples be one aren't we all organically connected why the need for distinction for individuality for differentiation isn't this the cause of greed and conflict and war forget the boundaries melt away in oneness it's a profound idea and a very beautiful idea but as beautiful as it sounds it's good for the imagination it's good to imagine it in imagination in reality it's sometimes more detrimental than constructive there is a nucleus there is a point here that is true but in its practical manifestation it often creates more havoc and chaos than peace. And the reason is because the way God created the world is that everything has an individual identity. Every person is different. Every flake of snow is different. There is not one type of bird. There are thousands of species of birds. And not one type of tree, but thousands of types of trees. And every human being is different. Every psyche is different. Every thing existing has its unique identity. When we deny it, when we deny something or somebody their individual identity, and we try to gloss over it and we say everything is one, that oneness is fake. It's superficially imposed. It's, it's denying the diversity that is inherent to the structure of existence. If you want peace in the world, you will not have peace by undermining diversity and making believe there's no difference between people or nations. Because when you do that, your unity is skin deep and it's superficial, and the moment the differences emerge, there will be conflict. True peace comes from a much deeper place. True peace comes from the fact that I acknowledge who I am. I respect it and cherish it, but I also acknowledge who you are. I am I. And you are you. And now we can begin to schmooze. Now I can appreciate that our differences need not create tension between us. On the contrary, our differences can allow us to enrich each other. Because there is a larger whole through, to which each of us contributes in our own unique individualistic way. So peace doesn't mean there are no differences. Peace means amidst the differences, everyone appreciates who they are. And you can appreciate who somebody else is and understand that there are differences and there are borders between. But now the dialogue and the conversation can create a unity within diversity, understanding everybody's unique role. And on the contrary, creating an even deeper unity because it's not just that the diversity doesn't destroy the unity, diversity contributes to the unity because I cherish that which you have and I do not have and I need you to complement that aspect in me. This is true in every relationship. It begins in a marriage. If the basis of a marriage is the fact we love each other, we're one because we're the same, you know how long that's going to last. As long as you think you're the same. But believe me, you're not the same. 
or at least most people are not the same, especially men and women, they're different creatures. Unity must come within the diversity, appreciating everybody's uniqueness, and then ensuring that the uniqueness not only does not undermine the unity, it actually enhances the unity. The best and simplest example is fire and water. Let the world be as one, let fire and water come together and coexist. But we know that fire and water, when they're put together and mixed together, they'll destroy each other. Either the fire will extinguish the flame, either the water will extinguish the flames, or the water will be evaporated by the heat of the fire. You want water and fire to coexist? Great. But you need a pot separating them. Put the water in the pot, and then put the pot on the fire. And now, the fire and the water will both contribute to take the raw food and turn it into a delicious gourmet dish that you can digest and enjoy. But if you take away the pot, if you don't have that border separating the fire from the water, you just make direct contact between the fire and the water without any havdol, without any boundaries. The water will not be able to be water, the fire will not be able to be fire, because you're undermining the fact that the chemistry of fire and the chemistry of water are very different. They each have their unique role and mission. We want them to work together, but it has to be in the context of a unique structure and a unique identity. And this is true in almost every issue in the world. You have the same issue, for example, between Jews and non-Jews. Some people are very allergic to the fact that there's a distinction between Jews and non-Jews. Is it racist? It's non-liberal? It's non-compassionate? But in this name of unity, they don't realize that they are actually contributing to the lack of unity. Because there are real differences in the world. A Jew is a Jew and a non-Jew is a non-Jew. Just like their body has different limbs and different organs. Just like a man is a man and a woman is a woman. There are different nations and different civilizations and different cultures. Just like there are so many different animals. And everyone has their own space, their own beauty, their own uniqueness, their own powers, their own virtues, their own challenges and flaws. When I can acknowledge who I am, I can acknowledge who you are. Then we could learn how our borders only help us live together and enrich each other in a more profound way. The unique identity given to every single creature, of course, comes from, and this is a basic idea in Jewish mysticism, comes from the evolutionary process of the cosmos. God himself is undefined and therefore completely unified. Everything originates in God's undefined unity. To unify everything without identity is to go back to the original unity that precedes creation. But for that, God didn't have to create a world. Everything was one. The reason God created a world is to introduce the unity within diversity, within structure, within identity, within the individual capacity and container of every single existence to reveal that underlying, undefined unity and how each of us is part of that unity in our own unique way. To go back to the undefined unity is to undo creation. Creation was imposing diversity within unity and channeling the unity through diversity. Now we have to think about this and understand this. And this is what's called Seder Hishtalshalus, which means the undefined divine energy and light. 
is channeled and accessed through a very intense and intricate evolutionary process from the world of Atsilas to Briyitzira Asiyah. And each world is multifaceted and multilayered and multidimensional on every single creature. And every world has its source, its spiritual origin, its spiritual source. In the various Sephirotic tree and the evolution throughout these four worlds, which is a whole complex discussion in the works of Kabbalah, in the works of Hasidism, beyond the scope of tonight's class. Now, this Jew, this man, was took on this idea, Vayikoyf, he perforated the curtain between Yitzir and Asiyah. He perforated, perforated the partition. He wanted the divine flow should not be restricted, should not go through a certain conduit. You shouldn't be able to, you should, it shouldn't be in a way that you access a certain energy through this reality, through this person, through this experience, and another energy through another experience. Everything is one. Let the energy be free, uninhibited, unrestrained. What happens when you make a hole in something? You make a hole and suddenly the flow of water, the flow of liquid is going from another direction to different places. Now let's come back to the three interpretations in Rashi and let us see how he did this, how it manifested itself practically. The first thing is, He went out of his world. He could not acknowledge that he has his world. He has his own world. You are you. The next thing was the bread. The way the energy flows into the world. There is Shabbos and there are the six days of the week. And they're not the same. We say Havdalah, we separate Shabbos from the days of the week. Why are you separating? Why can't time be one? And the answer is because Shabbos is different. And for Shabbos and the weekdays to coexist and get along, they need a border, they need a pot. Like between fire and water. And then Shabbos can inspire the six days of the week and the six days of the week can prepare for Shabbos. If not, then you confuse the energy. You don't get Shabbos, you don't get the weekdays. You don't know who Shabbos is. He couldn't deal with the fact that all of the hashpas, all of the influences go through Shabbos. So this is what he was laughing. What was he laughing? You bake bread on Friday? Even on Friday. The king waits nine days till the next Shabbos to eat the bread. Every day you eat new fresh bread. He couldn't acknowledge the fact that Shabbos had a special superiority. Shabbos was the source of energy. It says, Shabbos, my name is Baruch and Kula The blessings for a whole week come from Shabbos. Couldn't accept that. The next thing he couldn't accept is his place. He wanted to be in the camp of Dun. They said this has to do with your father being from Dun. His father was an Egyptian. This was a very difficult reality for him. He could not accept his place. His mother was Jewish. His father was an Egyptian. He said, it's all one. The world is one. What's the difference? Why is intermarriage a problem? Why can't everybody mingle with everybody? We're all human beings. We're all children of God. Why is he different? 
seems like a very valid point. The answer is, it's beautiful words to say everything and everybody is the same, but they're not. Everyone has their energy, their soul. The Jew and the non-Jew can do great things together and be friends and help each other and achieve great things together. Marriage is a certain type of relationship. Marriage is a relationship soul to soul. It's two halves of one soul. The Jewish soul, the non-Jewish soul are different souls. They can't connect on that level. Practically speaking, you can't expect the non-Jewish spouse to feel about Auschwitz the way the Jew feels about Auschwitz. Or to feel about Israel the way the Jew feels about Israel. Not because he or she is not good. It's because we're family. And since we're family, we have a certain relationship with family that I can't expect her or he to die for the same things I'm ready to die for. When you understand what marriage is, it's a connection soul to soul. The souls become one. You understand that it's healthier and happier for the Jew and the non-Jew to have borders, to have boundaries, and then they can actually appreciate each other and respect each other. By being who you are, you can give more to somebody else than by making believe that you are not who you are not. But this is a very difficult concept. He tried, this man tried to cover up on this, to remove the borders, to remove the boundaries. He made a hole, he perforated. That's how he would protect his mother. He's a Benish Mitzri, so what? He couldn't accept the place of the Jewish people in the world. He couldn't expect, he couldn't, he couldn't respect the place of Shabbos in the world. He couldn't respect the place of the base Hamikdash in the world. Because the divine energy comes into the world in three ways. Eilam, Shana, Nefesh, place, time and spirit. Place, the base Hamikdash, Jerusalem. The holy temple was the conduit of divine energy. Time, Shabbos, Saturday, the seventh day of the week. That's the, the transcendental oasis, an island in time, just like there are islands in space. And Nefesh, in spirit and soul, it's the Jewish people who were chosen to serve as sources of inspiration, kindness, and morality to the world. Not to be more arrogant, to be more humble in the presence of God. These are the channels. This man left his world. He couldn't understand, appreciate his world. He couldn't appreciate Shabbos. He couldn't appreciate his place in the community of Israel, his unique place. So he fought, he cursed. Because he wanted to be in the tribe of Don. But there are distinctions, there are borders. Now, why couldn't he accept it? What was the reason? The reason has to do with the fact that to accept boundaries you need humility. You have to understand that you are you, but you're not everything. And you can't have everything, and you don't need to have everything. Now there are two types of relationships that a person has with other people, with God. Sometimes I have a relationship, you know, I love you. I'll be here for you. I'll do anything for you. But with one condition, 
I have to be there. I have to be part of it. It's ultimately about me. There's another type of relationship. I'm so connected to you. I'm so committed to you. Even if I realize that for the sake of you and for the sake of this cause, I have to separate. That is also fine for me. Because it's not about me. It's not about my ego. I can deal with rejection in a much more profound way. This man came screaming, I want to be among the tribe of Don where my mother is. I want to be a full-fledged Jew. I want to be in there. In there. They said, you're a Jew. Your mother is Jewish. You're a Jew. It's not a question there. Amban explains it at length. You're a Jew. But here you don't belong. This is not your place. Once he heard that, and Moshe confirmed it, he cursed. Why? You want to be a Jew. You want to be part of the member of Don family because you cherish it. You value it, the Jewish structure, the Jewish religion. So what, now that the Jewish religion says you can't be here, why are you cursing? I don't understand. If you couldn't care less about it, why do you want to be here? Who cares? You're here, you're there, you're there. You want to be here because you appreciate the structure. If you appreciate the structure, the structure says you don't belong here. Why can't you accept it? And the answer to this is because he was a Ben Ishmitzri. There is a difference. The relationship between the Jew and God. The relationship of the non-Jew and God. The relationship of the Jew and God is if you don't want me, that's fine. That's part of my service to you. Sometimes I serve God through being embraced and being connected. And sometimes I'm rejected. And that's also a service. And I accept it fully. Knowing that God wants me not to be here, that's fine. I'm serving God by going away, by not being part of it. This level he couldn't deal with. I'll be here if I could be part of it. The moment I hear God's desire is that you should not be part of this. You should go away. Suddenly he threw it away. The Talmud conveys this point through a very powerful story. Bring up source number six. The Talmud says that when Mashiach comes, all the nations of the world are going to come to get their reward. So God says, what about the Torah and the mitzvahs? I, I offered them to you, you rejected it. So they'll give all these excuses. So God says, you know what, let me experiment with one mitzvah. Build a sukkah. It's sukkahs, build a sukkah. So the Talmud says, source number six of the Zorid of Gimel. Bring up number six. Every Gentile goes and builds a sukkah on the top of his roof. And God brings out the sun in the midst of the summer. The summer equinox, it's boiling hot. Each one of them kicks the sukkah and goes out because it's too hot. You have his head sit in a hot sukkah, you're boiling, you're sweating. They kick the sukkah and they leave. So the Gemara says, The halacha is that if the sukkah is aggravating, if it's painful to sit there, you're exempt. So the Jew would also leave the sukkah. The Talmud answers, He's exempt from the sukkah, but does he have to kick the sukkah? What's the explanation? If God brings out the sun, this is before air conditions, <laughs> God brings out the sun that's boiling in the sukkah. So you're not worthy to do the mitzvah. He's not accepting you in the sukkah. It's pouring rain or it's boiling hot. You leave the sukkah. But why kick the sukkah? Why are you getting angry at the sukkah? 
There's two types of relationships. One relationship is, I want to do the sukkah, I want to do the mitzvah, I want to be connected to you, I want to enjoy you. But I want to be there to enjoy it. I want to enjoy the relationship. I want to experience the ecstasy. It's, it's about you, but it's ultimately about me. There's a narcissism here. I never transcended myself. But what if I know if for the sake of the cause, if for the sake of the relationship, it's better if I'm gone? Oh, here you have to have a deeper relationship. Here you have to have the humility. You have to be able to surrender your ego. Like the Gemara says, Just like I got reward for expounding, I'll get reward for separating from going away. You know, sometimes in a relationship you have to be close, and sometimes for the sake of the relationship you have to let go of this person, and some people say, no, I'll die for you, but I have to be there. I'm not going to separate from you. I can't give you space. I have to be there. A deeper relationship is, it's not about you. So if you know that God wants you not to be in the sukkah, you're being rejected, you can celebrate it with the same joy and the same depth as though you were invited to the sukkah. Why? Because that's what He wants. That's His will. It's not about me. It's about fulfilling His will. And if you need me to be out of here, that's fine. You know, they tell the joke that there was once a husband comes home Friday afternoon, and like good Jewish husbands, he comes to the kitchen, starts eating the kugel and the chalant and the meat and the fish, because he's starving, and the woman is preparing for Shabbat. She tells him, what are you doing in the kitchen? Don't you see I'm working hard? It's a balagan. So he says, what do you want me to do? She says, I want, he says, I want to help you. She says, help me. He says, okay, let me help you. How can I help you? She says, you want to help me get out of the house. Okay, so he goes to shul for an hour and a half to help his wife. He comes home after an hour and a half, and again, he's in the kitchen nibbling on the food. So she says, Vos, yes, what happened now? He says, Vifel is Ashir Helfen. How long can I help you for? I helped you an hour and a half. How long can I help you? There are two types of relationships, and one Jew celebrates the rejection, the distance, because that's also from God. But for that, you have to have bitl, you have to have humility. You have to appreciate that there's a place for you and there's a place where you don't belong. And you can find yourself even in the place where you don't belong because that itself is the will of God. And this he could not deal with. Why couldn't he deal with it? Because he was a Ben Ish Mitzri. His father was the Egyptian. This will explain the relationship with Cain. What was the problem of Cain? Why did Cain kill Hevel? Because he needed everything. The Medrash says, Rashi brings, he fought about, the Medrash says, he fought with Cain about who the world belongs to. Cain needed everything. He fought with Hevel, Hevel had an extra twin sister. So the question was, who gets this twin sister? Cain was born with a twin, and Hevel was born with a twin. Cain married his twin, Hevel married his twin. There was an extra twin sister, Cain killed Hevel because he wanted a twin sister. The word Cain comes from the word Kenyan, which means acquisition. The word, Hevel, the word Hevel means vanity. For Cain, the philosophy of life is acquisition. I must own everything. I must be everywhere. Hevel is much more humble. So when God doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice, what does he do? He gets angry. He can deal with the rejection, although God says, I don't want your sacrifice. That's the will of God. That is the will of God. That's also a relationship with God. 
Sometimes a relationship with God is, I want your sacrifice. And sometimes I don't want your sacrifice. Judaism teaches that's also a relationship. In a way, it's a very profound relationship. The fact that you don't belong here is also a relationship. Cain couldn't deal with it. The moment God rejected Cain's offering, he got angry. And he kills his brother, Hevel. This Egyptian that Moshe killed was a reincarnation of Cain. It's beyond the scope of the class, but Arizal teaches that Cain was reincarnated into three people. Shivasayim, you come. Call Noikim, Cain, Shivasayim, you come. Yisroi, Koirach, Mitzri. The Neshama of Cain was reincarnated into Jethro. The Ruach of Cain was reincarnated into Koirach. The Nefesh, the lowest level of Cain, was reincarnated into Mem, into Mitzri, into the Egyptian. Moshe was a reincarnation of Hevel. Cain killed Hevel, and Hevel, the blood of Hevel, is screaming from the earth. So now Moshe did the same to the reincarnation of Cain. He hid Cain in the earth, in the Egyptian. Shloimeh's Basdivri, according to the Arizal, was a reincarnation of a certain part of the extra twin of Hevel. And therefore, this Egyptian came after her because he was a reincarnation of Cain. Moshe Rabbeinu, who was a reincarnation of Hevel, kills this Egyptian. Now he has a son, and the son cannot accept his place and identity. It's sometimes you scream, unity, unity. But really, it's a form of jealousy. You lack the humility to be able to acknowledge that you are what you are. Cherish it, but you're not everything. This is the source of so much jealousy. I see you're doing this, you're having it, and I can't deal with it. I get angry, I get frustrated. But you are you and I am I. Nobody can take away from you what your real contribution is. No one will deprive you from it. Make peace with yourself. Embrace yourself. And that requires good self-confidence, but it requires simultaneously profound humility. Sometimes what sounds like unity is a form of self-aggrandizement. I have to be everywhere, and I cannot acknowledge who I am. You are a person. Your father was an Egyptian. Your mother mother was Jewish. It was a painful and tragic story, but this is who you are. Now you have your place in the world, your role in the world. Don't, in the name of the shame, try to cover up all the borders and make believe they don't exist. And the very fact of what he did showed that he was different. Because his father was who his father was, he could not deal with the rejection of Moshe. And what does he do? He curses God. In Emra we have about Kayanim who are blemished and they can't work in the temple. In the same portion. Does that mean they're rejected? They're rejected from working in the temple, but that's a relationship. What does it mean it's a relationship? The very fact that they know God wants them not to be there, that's the way they relate to Him. They can respect it. They can appreciate it. In a relationship you have to be able to appreciate that too. And what's the result of this? The result of this is he gets stoned. It's not just physically, it's spiritually, psychologically. Skila being stoned spiritually, psychologically means you become stoned in the sense that the heart and the mind become stone-like, plugged. It doesn't emote. It's, it's not responsive anymore. 
there no, there's no fluidity, there's no life, there's no vitality. It's like the person becomes completely stone-like. Because they detach themselves from their own source of energy, from their own source of vitality. The problem was he went out of his own world. He couldn't embrace his world. He couldn't embrace his source of life, his source of energy, his own place, his own relationship. He couldn't deal with Shabbos. He couldn't deal with the Beis Hamikdash. He couldn't deal with his place in the camp. And as a result of that, what happens is the person becomes desensitized. When we curse others in Yiddish, it says Meshiltzich. I curse myself. I'm cursing others. I'm angry at others. It's really a form of not accepting myself. So there's a certain deadness in the person, a lack of inspiration. And that's expressed by the skila, by the stones that cover this person. I want to conclude with a story. Perhaps I want to share this story, but this is a story worth repeating and worth remembering. It's a story about the two great brothers, the Hasidic masters, the Holy Rebbe Rebelimelech of Lezhensk and the Holy Rebzush of Anapola. They would travel, visit their brethren, and they traveled as disguised beggars. They were beggars, but they disguised their righteousness, their scholarship. Later they became great masters. The Nayam Elimelech, Reb Melech, Reb Zusha. And once somebody informed upon them to the police, and they were thrown into a dungeon, which was filled with people. And the circumstances there were very bad. To the extent there was no bathroom. Instead of a bathroom, in the corner of the room, imagine there was a bucket, a pail, which people used when they needed to tend to their needs. In the morning, Reb Zusha sees his brother, Reb Melech, Reb Elimelech, weeping. Brother, why are you crying, he says. And he says, because I can't daven, I can't pray. According to Jewish law, you're not allowed to pray to God in a place where there's such a horrible odor. So Reb Zusha says, no, so why are you crying? You won't daven. Reb Elimelech says, it's the first day. It's the first day I'm not going to be able to pray to God. So Reb Zusha says, so you won't pray to God. He says, what do you mean? I need my relationship with God. To be functional, to be effective, to be who I am, I need to connect the first thing in the morning. I have to connect to my own essence, to the essence of reality, to the core of the cosmos. What is God? God is the essence of reality. That's the Jewish understanding of God. God is the essence of the self, the essence of identity. If I don't connect with my own essence, I'm detached from my very self, I'm detached from my source of life. I can't function, I need to pray, I need my relationship with God. So Reb Zusha says, today you'll also have a relationship with God. How? Through not praying the same God who wants you to pray every day. States that His will is that if there's a horrible smell, you shouldn't pray. So by not praying, you will fulfill God's will. When you fulfill God's will, you connect to God. So today you will connect to God by fulfilling His will and not praying. You won't pray and that will be your relationship. And Rebbe Malach says, wow, I didn't think of this. You're right. And instead of crying, he starts singing. And they both start singing and it's two Hasidic Jews, so they start dancing. And in a few minutes, they had the whole room dancing with them. It was Purim and Simchastera dancing, Kazatskis, ecstatic. Everybody was having fun and celebrating, dancing away with the two Jews, Abzush and Rebbe dancing in the middle. The prison warden hears the commotion, he runs into the cell. 
And he sees everybody's dancing. He calls over one of the non-Jews and he says, What's this joy? What's this festivity? What's this dancing? The guy says, I don't know. The Jews are guilty as usual. They instigated everything. He says, you tell me right now why they're dancing. Why are they so happy? And the trembling man points to the bucket. And the warden says, what is so exciting about that bucket? Why is that making them so happy? And he says, I don't know, but somehow they explained that as a result of the bucket, they developed a new type of relationship with their God. There was the pre-bucket relationship and the post-bucket relationship. Before the bucket, they had one relationship with God. And now because of the bucket, they have a different relationship with God. The prison warden says, "Ah, I will teach these Jews a lesson. And he takes the pail, he takes the bucket, and he throws it out of the room. Rebzusha turns to Rebbe Limelech and says, Bruder, brother, now you could start davening. Now you could begin praying. The moral of the story, one of them is, we're always in a relationship. Sometimes we connect through prayer. And sometimes you're asked to connect through not praying. But it's always a relationship. Sometimes I connect through getting close and sometimes God says, now it's time for you to be far. And that's also a relationship. Because you have your identity, your mission, your story, your energy. And you connect to the ultimate unity through the conduit, through the partitions that were transmitted to you. Have a wonderful this class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.